Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our meditation this morning is our second lesson, Romans 10, 5-13. It's printed in your bulletins and already read. Dear fellow confessors of Christ, in our gospel today, just a few moments ago, we heard Jesus ask what could be considered the most important question anyone can be asked. Who do you say that I am? He asked his disciples this after first asking them who other people said he was. Those answers were wrong, but the answer Peter gave, speaking for the twelve, was absolutely right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Though he believed it, and it was true, Peter did not fully understand what he had confessed. It probably wasn't until Pentecost that he really began to grasp the full meaning of it. But it was still a confession that was full of faith, full of trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And his master then said that his church would be built upon that confession and endure despite the deadly opposition of Satan and his allies. And that's what today's gospel and many of our hymns today rightly focus on. But we do not want to let that great truth about the church make us overlook what Jesus with his question was inviting his disciples to do and that our text from Romans 10 encourages us to do. Not just learn and speak about truths, but own them. To take them in, to affirm them, to trust them, and then to confess them. Say who Jesus is. Now, Just as saying someone's name all by itself is not everything that there is to saying who he or she is, so it is with Jesus. Saying who he is, confessing your Christian faith, involves a lot of important truths. It's one of the reasons that the first and second art, or excuse me, that the second articles of the Nicene and the Apostles' Creeds are longer than the first and third. But we can start with what seems to be the simplest truth about Christ, as as Paul puts it in verse 9 here, confessing that Jesus is Lord. Now, to many people, that seems to mean little more than that Jesus is number one, that he's the guy in charge, or that he's the one they try to listen to. But Lord here is the equivalent of the Lord in the Old Testament. The great I am who I am who created the world, who chose and blessed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who introduced himself to Moses in a burning bush, and then later spoke to him in a cleft of rock on Mount Sinai, declaring himself, as we heard earlier from Exodus 34, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger 
and overflowing with mercy and truth, maintaining mercy for thousands, forgiving guilt and rebellion and sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. He calls their children and their children's children to account for the guilt of the fathers, even to the third and fourth generation. So confessing Jesus as Lord is proclaiming him to be infinitely more than your favorite guru or guide for life. It is recognizing him as the Almighty God who took on human flesh but lost none of his authority, power, or deity. It's stating that you know and trust him as not just some guy with Christ as a name or a title, but as truly the Son of the living God. It can help to remember some of the scenes that Peter and the other disciples probably meditated on in later years. Scenes like Jesus stilling the storm on the Sea of Galilee with just a word. Demons cowering before him and being cast out with a single command. And heaven on earth, heaven and earth reacting with revulsion at his death on the cross. With the skies darkened at midday and the ground beneath quaking and cracking. These were evidence of what the scriptures clearly teach. That Jesus of Nazareth the Son of Mary, born in Bethlehem, was and is truly the Son of God, the Almighty Lord over all creation. Which means that when we say who Jesus is in faith, we also say what the Bible says. And since the Scriptures are God's Word, that means that we are simply confessing what the Lord says about Himself. Or, if we want to look at it in in terms of the Trinity, we are confessing what the Father says through the Holy Spirit about the Son. And it should go without saying that this means that what we are saying about Jesus is true. These are not just our own thoughts or feelings about him, nor are they opinions of other people long dead. These are the very words of God telling us exactly what he wanted us to know, believe, teach, and confess. And those words can be trusted, not only because it is always a good idea to listen and believe when the Almighty speaks, but also because this is the very God who has shown himself time and again as absolutely worthy of our trust, shown it by loving us, by keeping his promises, by using his divine power on our behalf, and and so, so much more. That's why we believe. Some people have the misguided notion, though they would probably never say it this way, the the misguided notion that what we are supposed to do is put our faith in faith. They, They think that it's the power of believing that saves them, 
reasoning that, that, well, faith is the thing that distinguishes the delivered from the damned and the sure from the uncertain. But that really makes no more sense than, than a drowned man after the fact claiming that he's alive today because he cooperated with the lifeguard who dragged him out of the water and performed CPR on him. No, we are saved by faith only because that faith has a very specific and important object, the thing that it takes hold of, what God did for us in and through Jesus, His Son, our Lord, because of His love for us. This is summed up by Paul in our text with, Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. I say summed up because the apostle is obviously not just presenting us with some random fact unconnected to any other knowledge. We say Christ rose from the dead, but that miraculous truth doesn't stand alone. It has even greater power because it was in keeping with God's promises regarding the Savior. And that resurrection was only necessary because Christ died on the cross, which was because someone had to pay for the sins of all sinners to remove the guilt and stench of their rebellion. And God decided that it would be His Son who would die and not the sinners themselves. And for that death to count for everyone... Christ had to be perfect and had to be God. But for him to die, he had to be human, which is why he was born of Mary, a virgin, which was in keeping with more of God's promises about the Savior and is why he lived a life of obedience and service until the time for his sacrifice had come. All of those things that we say that we believe about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the creeds, and much more. It's all encapsulated in confessing that He rose from the dead because it was all grace and mercy and the power of God. The Lord doing for us what we would never deserve and could never do for ourselves. This is what we believe. And thus are our sins forgiven. Thus is our fate transferred from hell to heaven. Eternal death is traded for eternal life and bliss, and we are brought fully into the family of God, having Him as our Father and Jesus as our brother. Because Christ was raised from the dead, we too will be raised and live forever like Him and with Him. And through faith, the Holy Spirit has made us to be like Jesus even now. It's not just that our sins and guilt have been taken away. It is that all of His holiness has been made ours too. So that now, when God looks at us, He sees perfection not filth. So also say, Christ is your righteousness. 
Paul's fellow Jews, for the most part, believed that the way to gain righteousness and therefore have favor with God was to do what the law of Moses told them to do. They thought of God's commands as as something outside of themselves that, that required their maximum effort. And if they were good enough, if they took things far enough, if they reached high and reached low enough, well, then then they might be confident that they were righteousness, righteous enough for God. But they were not reading Moses or the rest of the Scriptures right at all. Sure, Moses had said obedience was the way to live, but what they missed was that that living was centered in the heart and not in one's actions. Having the Word of God and trusting it was what made His people righteous. And with that Word in their mouths and in their hearts, they enjoyed God's mercy and salvation. And then in that joy and grace, His people would happily live righteous lives of love and obedience. Which means that the righteousness of God's Old Testament people is no different from the righteousness of God's New Testament people. Because it all and always comes from God by grace through faith, not by what we do. And that means that any and every believer has one more confession to make. Say, in Jesus, we're all the same. In Paul's ministry, the division that seemed most significant to most people was the one between the Jews and the non-Jews. But he could hardly have corrected that kind of thinking more emphatically than he does here. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord is Lord of all who gives generously to all who call on Him. So for us today, an American Christian is not more or less righteous than an Armenian one. And a black believer is no more or less favored by God than a white one. And a rich sinner is no more or less saved by God's grace in Christ than a poor one. Income, education, Ethnicity, ability, disability, hairstyle, hair length, hair color, skin color, eye color, height, weight, political party, language, accent, any, Audi, whatever anyone uses to differentiate and discriminate between people makes no difference in the church or in our value or status before the Lord. Perfection is perfection. There are no shades or or grades. There is no distinction in the righteousness that we enjoy or in the love that God has lavished on us formerly worthless sinners. This is the reality and confession that ties everyone in the Holy Christian Church together. What matters is where we put our trust. And since we all put our trust 
in the same Savior. We all enjoy the same wonderful, eternal, unearned, glorious blessings that Jesus lived and died to give us. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We are Christ's communion of saints. So own it. Now, today and every tomorrow, this is your faith in your Savior from sin, and He is your righteousness and your sure hope of heaven. Speak from your heart and confess with your mouth. Say who Jesus is. He is not just a fascinating figure from history. He's not just a character in a book. He's not just a great moral teacher or a tragic example of a good man caught up in bad times. Nor is he a distant relative or a family friend, someone, well, maybe our parents were close to and we may remember warmly, but don't really think much of ourselves. Jesus is your Lord and your Redeemer, your brother and your dearest friend. So confess it. Make it official. Make it public. Make it relevant. Make it real. Write it down. Shout it out. Sing at the top of your lungs. Do it for yourself as confirmation and commitment. And do it as a witness to others who need to know Him or as an encouragement for fellow believers. Say it. You will not be put to shame. Call on Him and you will be saved. Answer the most important question there is. Say who Jesus is. Amen. Please rise. Now may the God of hope fill you with complete joy and peace as you continue to believe, so that you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.